Ruth chapter 2. And as we come to the book of Ruth, we are reminded of the story where Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, 10 years prior, had lived in Bethlehem, house of bread. That's what the city, the town, the village means. And during a famine, her and her husband and her two adult boys moved to Moab. So they moved out of the promised land to the land of foreigners. They went from where Jehovah's God in a famine to a place where Chamosh is God, the bully God, and the various other gods they served over there, the Moabites and the Ammonites and all those folks that lived in the east to the east of the Jordan River. And there her husband died, and then both her sons died, her big boy and her baby boy. And she had her two daughter-in-laws. We know that there are good relationships. They're very close. They wept together twice in chapter 1, the daughter-in-laws with Ruth, with Naomi with Ruth and the other daughter-in-law. And Naomi said, I'm, it's been a tough go. You go back to your household, find some Moabite men who you can reboot the human experience with and start over again. And I'll go back my way because they'd heard that there was bread in Bethlehem. So after 10 years, talk about a tough decade, she's going back to her hometown where they owned property before they left, but they would have sold the property. So her husband sold the house, sold the land during a famine, had a business plan to go to Moab where there was opportunity. And they all died in Moab and she's returning alone. Dramatic, powerful story. But we know that Ruth, her daughter-in-law, refused to stay behind. Ruth insisted to be by Naomi's side till death do them part. And when they got back to Bethlehem, and Ruth the Moabitess is with Naomi, and remember, Moabites and Israelites would have been absolute enemies. And if you think, well, the Israelites looked upon Moabites as enemies, believe me, Moabites looked upon Israelites as enemies. They would have been jealous of the blessings of God upon the Israelites, for sure, because their God's a blessing God. And they're being chastened by God during the time of Judges, because this is on the back end during the time of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's in that backdrop where Naomi comes back to town with this foreign woman that no one knew. She comes back to her hometown, where the house she used to own is right there on the corner, and the land they used to work is right there. The business is there. And there's bread in Bethlehem, house of bread. She comes back, And everyone's so happy to see her, but all she can think about is her grief. And she said, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She had a a rough go, as as rough as it can go in the human experience. And it's in that backdrop where we come to chapter 2 and pick up now the second segment of this story. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13. We read the whole chapter Tuesday night, but... For the back part of the chapter kind of summarizes with the 13, and I'll do that. So, verse 1, chapter 2. And it was the beginning of the barley harvest for the house of bread, Bethlehem. And there was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. That was her husband's name that died in Moab. This relative was a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And so Ruth said, Naomi said to Ruth, said to her, Go, my daughter. And then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, that's his foreman, his boss, and he says, hey, whose young woman is this? And so the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, uh, it is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, uh, 
please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheep. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, you will listen to me, my daughter, will you not? Do not go glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and you've come to the people whom you did not know. The Lord repay your work and full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. And then she said to him, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. This is the key dialogue of this chapter and really the key dialogue of this book, this amazing story. It's building and it's moving toward a very happy ending. From bitterness of Naomi will come redemption with Obed, the child that will come through Ruth and Boaz, and from that child will come Jesse, and from Jesse will come the great King David and the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to a very interesting spiritual fact behind the story we just read. In a universe with trillions of galaxies, (laughs) that's amazing. In a universe with trillions of galaxies, that's a number that's just massive. In a universe where God knows the hairs on our head, In a universe where God spoke everything we know of time, space, and matter into existence out of nothing, he made it all in six literal days. And where humanity is the crown jewel of the entire universe, man, woman, and where sin wrecked and brought curse upon the entire universe, the law of entropy, death. In this universe, from that fall, when God spoke in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, the promise of a Messiah to come, All through the pre-flood world, primeval world of about 1,600 years, up to the time of Noah, then the flood, then the ice age, and then 500 years later, Abraham, where God called Abraham, the Abrahamic promise, out of modern Iraq to the promised land, Israel. And there the sons of promise, Abraham gave birth to Isaac, the son of promise, Jacob, the grandson, Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph and the rest, to become a nation. They all endured famines. What God did in their lives, he did in the same land where they're at right now, this story of Boaz and Ruth. He was working on redemption. Always working on redemption of humanity. Not just redemption of a house and a property lost, which this story is about. Because Boaz is the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And we're going to see that next week in the future. He alone is the person set aside by God by genealogy and biological plans of the Lord the relative Elimelech, that is the Goel, the kinsman's redeemer, that can redeem the land and the house that Ruth and her family lost, excuse me, that Naomi and her family gave up when they moved to Moab 10 years before. For in the law of God, there is, with the inheritances God gave his people, the Israelites in the land, 
You could sell your land, but you could buy it back. You had that right to buy it back. And even in the book of Revelation, there in chapter 5, we're told in the praise and worship of the throne room, who is worthy to unloosen the scroll, the redemption scroll of planet Earth, to break the curse of sin, to break Satan's plans and the darkness and the sin and death and all these things that affect the whole universe, trillions of galaxies. And they cry out, who is worthy? And the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is worthy. And in his coming, he redeems back for us what Adam lost and Eve in the garden. They gave up their house. They gave up their residence. They gave up the land God gave them to till, for they were tillers of the ground. And in their sin, they gave it up. They forfeited it. And they lost it, and it was forfeited to Satan, entire planet Earth. Thus the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, the prince of the power of the air, the one who creates mischief behind the scenes with principalities and powers. And from that original fall to that promise of Jesus in Revelation chapter 5 to redeem planet Earth with his soon coming, his second coming, his return, he is the ultimate Goel and kinsman redeemer, not just of Elimelech's land, and Naomi's inheritance that God had given her family hundreds of years before when they came into the promised land in the time of Joshua. But of planet Earth, and as we gather here tonight as the church of Jesus Christ, we wait for our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. He's already redeemed us from sin and the power of the devil and the fear of the grave, but he will raise us from the grave. And when we read about the second coming of Christ, we are reading about our Goel, Jesus Christ, redeeming and restoring all things, a new heaven, a new earth, a full restoration, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more tears. That is redemption of planet earth, this universe, the fullness of what the shadow is and the type is of Naomi's house and property. And in this story, Ruth, who's a hero. They're all heroes, but it really, as I said Tuesday night, the, the real hero is Jesus, Jehovah, and Yeshua, his son. But in this universe of trillions of galaxies and trillions of planets, and where time, space, and matter does guide and govern the universe as a dynamic of the universe that God made, on this day in human history, this is a real day. And you think of this story of this broken, impoverished woman from Moab, a foreigner, so now we do what we did Tuesday night. We're going to think about foreigners who come to America looking for work. They might get small business loans, and they might build, you know, they might have this gas station, this 7-Eleven or whatever. You see this when you go around the country. Australia is the same thing when you go to Australia. But they, come, they might get government grants. They might not. They might be here legally. They might not. But here in America, particularly in Southern California, you see all these diverse ethnicities of people who English is a second language, who have come from a distant land that is not good at all to a house of bread to try and carve out a life. We used to call that, and we still do call it, the American dream. And their entry level is cleaning people's houses or mowing their lawns or working graveyard shift at a risk in a 24-hour gas station in south-central L.A. They take the lowest jobs with the lowest pay to put bread on the table, however they can, to make it happen. And they might be friendly to you and me if you're white or Latino or Asian, whatever. They might be friendly, they might not. They might be racist against you. They might resent white people or Latinos or Asians or blacks. They might, right? There might be people here that resent them. But they've taken their foreigners and they've taken the lowest position of society to earn bread 
And herein is very similar to Ruth. She's taking the lowest position to earn bread. In God's welfare economy, he provided bread, daily bread, for the poor people. And it's better than the cards they give you now, right? If we own this land that Boaz owns, and by the way, we'll get to him, he prospered in a famine, which is what people of faith do. But she, she was there, and in God's economy, she was allowed, he could only glean his field once. She's allowed to come in behind the gleaners and look for leftovers and gather it. That was a welfare program. By the way, that's not a handout, is it? A little side note. I listened to Pastor Chuck's study on this from 45 years ago. And all, it's a better welfare program. It's not a handout. It's not a, it's not a debit card in the mail. You had to get up like Ruth did, go to the field, and glean. I remember when homeless people used to beg for money at Calvary Vista 40 years ago. Geller would say, come back in an hour, I'll put you to work. And occasionally you see guys doing landscaping work at Calvary Vista, 885 East Vista Way, and then Gaylord would give them like a gift card for Albertsons or something. That's really a biblical model. The handout isn't so much a biblical model, although let me say this, Proverbs tells us, he who gives to the poor gives to the Lord, and he always repays. So by the way, if someone's grateful or not grateful when you give them your breakfast burrito, um, the Lord will always repay you. You can never go wrong. You can never go wrong. Cast your bread upon many waters. You don't know which direction will come back from. You can never go wrong. You can never go wrong when you give to the poor because you're given to the Lord and he will always repay. You can never go wrong. But in this economic system, coming out of a famine, and now in Bethlehem, house of bread, there's bread, she is entry-level position. You know, the first job I went for was Ukigawa Tomatoes in Carlsbad where Legoland is now. It used to be all those tomato fields back in 1974, 75. And that's where everyone got their first job going to Carlsbad High School back in the day. Didn't matter if you were the Chicanos and you played on the soccer team or your surfers like Joey Baran and David Barr. You all went to Ukigawa Tomato Packing House for the Ukigawa family, who, by the way, had been in internment camps during World War II. They moved to Carlsbad, they bought the land, and they had tomato fields. And in the morning, we'd all show up. You know, I'm like 15 years old, right? And Ukigawa Jr., who's still alive, they just did a big feature story on him in Carlsbad Magazine, he'd come out, and he'd go, you, 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 you. And my first job, ladies and gentlemen, was sorting green and red tomatoes for eight hours on a conveyor belt at Ukigawa Tomatoes. That's Ruth's job here. Remember your first job? Cleaning the toilets at Del Taco or something? We all have a... This is how... This woman at one time had a husband who loved her, and he died. He died young. And she chose her mother-in-law over her own mother, her own father, her gods, and her high school classmates. She gave up everything she knew, like my Norwegian great-grandmother who got on a ship in Europe with seven kids not speaking English and came through Ellis Island in 1905 got on a train, and took it to Illinois, where my great-grandfather was waiting for her after two and a half years. I think for Americans, we can find things in this story that we relate to, perhaps a little bit deeper than most people might. Because, obviously, unless you're Native Americans, and even so, we don't know how or where you began to be here. We all came from somewhere. We all came from somewhere. And we all start somewhere. 
we need to understand the context of Ruth in this field. And it is the law of God that allowed her to go to work in this field and to receive the gleanings from this field as food for her. And she's not doing it just for her. She's actually doing it for her mother-in-law, who she said, your God is my God, your people are my people. That's the background here. And this story right here, just this element of the story contextually should give us empathy on everyone around us. At 61, I'm almost 61, I'm learning to smile at people in America who don't smile back at me. It used to really bother me when I'd smile at people who are from another country and they wouldn't smile back. Did that, does that bother you? I kind of like, what's wrong with you people? Life is good. We're not even beach on the bike path. Why can't you smile? Well, I don't know their story. And neither do you. God's teaching me in the 61st year of living to still smile when they're not smiling. And that's a good lesson to get me ready for eternity. In God's law, God's law is important in this chapter. This is all going according to his word. Listen to me. This whole story takes place in the context of his word. Her gleaning, she's allowed to glean because God's word provides for her to glean. She's in the boundaries of blessings as a Gentile. She is benefiting from the word of God as a Gentile, a non-Jew. But we know the gospel is to the Jew first, then the Gentiles. She's a type of the church in many ways in this story, as we've talked about. And so in a galaxy of trillions, in a universe of trillions of galaxies and trillions of planets, we must realize for a minute that this woman, a foreigner, who's all in with the people of covenant, grafted in like a Gentile, and this man of wealth who prospered in the land of famine when his relative left and sold everything and never came back. These two different people separated by cultures and generations, probably at least one generation, have eye contact. This man and this woman. He's a powerful man. Economically, he's probably the most powerful man in the region because he found a way to make money during a famine. And he has many employees during the famine. He is in a position of economic, social power. She is probably one generation lower, a foreigner, and she's in a position of total brokenness that she falls to her knees before him. And in the entire universe that God oversees, where all the planets do what they're doing, comets, asteroids, this moment of this man and this woman having eye contact is the messianic promises of Jesus Christ. This is the arrowhead, the apex of the gospel of Jesus Christ on planet Earth. Not only on this day, but in this generation. Because as God was building his genealogy of how he was going to save the world, how he was going to reach the nations through his son, a Jew, king of the Jews, to reach the Gentiles, all nations, here, this Jew who's a faithful Jew during the time of Judges, whose life is guided by the word of God, who does leave the promises of God, does live by faith, does show empathy and compassion. He's a kind man. He's a good man. He's a benevolent leader. This man is a Jew's Jew in the Old Testament covenant. And this woman is a church's church because she's a Gentile and she's all in with Jehovah's people. Last week's message. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. I want to be with the church. And I want to praise Jesus' name. Wherever it's happening. Let's do this. From Southern Baptist to Foursquare Pentecostal. 
I want to be with your people. All in. This is amazing. And these two people will come together and have this child also in the framework of God's word. We'll get to that next week with the kinsman redeemer. And that child is going to grow up to be the grandfather of David. The, the, the way the generations work. It's, it's incredible. With all the civilizations, the ancient Chinese cultures, the Eastern people, and all these human beings on planet Earth this time, this moment where, where this conversation we just read happens, the, all the promises of God, everything Jesus promised to do, Revelation 5, who's where they take the scroll, it's all right here, and this is a type of what's going to happen when Jesus comes for us. It's all in this moment right here. Slow it down. Rewatch the scene. Play it again over and over and over. This is the love of God for humanity. Because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And this man's a kinsman's redeemer. And this Gentile woman's going to be grafted in to redeem back to the house of Elimelech those things. And from that house will come David. And David will be the title that our Lord and Savior Jesus takes. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Ruth and Boaz will end up in both genealogies of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, in this text, Ruth said to Naomi, I'm going to find this man that I may find favor in his sight. Then she finds favor in his sight when she says in verse 10, why have I found favor in your eyes? And then in verse 13, the last verse we read, she said, let me find favor in your sight. So she's looking for favor from this very man in the start of this chapter. Then she finds favor from this man in this chapter. And then she's asking for more favor from this man in this chapter. This phrase, find favor, is an interesting one. We read this phrase with Joseph in the book of Genesis, where he found favor wherever he went. He prospered in Potiphar's house. He prospered in the prison, and he prospered before Pharaoh. He went from being the smartest man in the country, but running a prison as a prisoner, falsely accused. And in one day, he gets called up, takes a shower, changes his garments, comes before the richest, most powerful man on planet Earth, who gives him his signet ring, and says, you're in charge of all my wealth. So don't let lack of wealth ever discourage you, temporal wealth. Because it's really about being faithful in the little things. And if God wants to give you more, he'll give you more. It's that simple. But be faithful in whatever he gives us. Joseph found favor while he also found great heartache and sorrow and injustices. But he found favor. And for all the wealth that Joseph ever controlled in the book of Genesis, he controlled all of Egypt. He was a, he's probably the greatest landlord, land baron of all time, really, for real. If you know the story, it matches up that way. But even so, he could be entrusted with all that wealth because in the end of his life, he's in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith saying, I know that God will visit his people and keep his promises. And my life isn't in Egypt. And my life isn't bound in these temporal things. You pick my bones up when you leave this land and God keeps his promises. And you take my bones and you bury them in the promised land because my God is Jehovah. And my God has promised to send the Redeemer. And it's not about Egypt and temporary wealth. It's about the promised land. Because I'm yoked to my great-grandfather Abraham, who, who never had a house, 
who believed in God for his house. That's my God. Abraham looked for the city which had foundation, whose builder and maker is God. And I may have controlled all the wealth on planet Earth as number two. And by the way, in the Bible, the people that control the money faithfully are always in the two spot. They're always the backup quarterback, like Daniel in Babylon. It's very interesting. They're never the starting quarterback. They're always the backup quarterback. So in this story, this finding favor, we have a woman at the lowest entry point of employment in Israel petitioning for favor. She says God is her God, so she's petitioning Jehovah. And she's looking at God's people. They're her people now. And she goes out, and God gives her favor with this man, Boaz. And she falls on her face before him, which is pretty embarrassing, but it's sincere. It's not false humility. False humility is not a good thing. But true humility is a beautiful thing. And this is true humility. And she says, why have I found favor? And Boaz says, because I know what you've done for good. And then she says, well, give me more favor. I'd like more favor. She's going to be his wife. They're going to have the child that links Adam to David, to Jesus. Whatever her expectations were on that day, she went out and said, God of Jehovah, God of the burning bush, God of Mount Sinai, please give me favor in the eyes of Boaz. Whatever she thought that favor looked like, could she have ever known a thousand years later when the Holy Spirit's guiding the New Testament writers, Dr. Luke and Matthew, the tax collector, that she would be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God coming to the universe to save humanity? You know, the Bible, so often God says, like, it's so much bigger. As the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts and ways above you. You can never outbid God. Though I told you what I'm going to do, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Habakkuk 1.5. I have not seen or ear heard the things that God has for us. So as we're gathered here tonight, if we have macro faith or micro faith, whatever we think God can do, he can do way more. God is able to do above and beyond all that we could think and ask according to his glory in his church of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 3. And he frees his time to bring Boaz and Ruth together in the context of his law working naturally in human events. Or as Pastor Chuck said on this study back in 1979, there's no coincidences with God. It's all just divine appointments working out from the God of the universe in time, space, and matter. And favor is just God bringing people along from disobedience to obedience to full obedience to discouragement and disheartenment. Because you want to say we get favor because we're obedient. And I wanted to kind of give a message like, hey, when you're obedient, God blesses you. But that's not necessarily true. God will bless you when you're disobedient. Guess what amazing grace is? That's why you cry sometimes when we sing songs about grace. Because you know you're a naughty little disciple. And you're still blessed. Blessings upon blessings. And that's amazing. He's not redeeming planet Earth with the blood of Jesus Christ, Revelation 5, and the new heaven and earth, because we're wonderful people and we deserve it. We're sinners saved by grace. All of our good works are as filthy rags. Man, the heart of man is def- desperately wicked. I'm just quoting scripture. So he saves us by grace. And we stumble. We have good days. We have days we feel like we can do this. We have days like, I'm done. I'm over. I can't do this. 
But he's the Goel. He's the kinsman redeemer. And this is a, a shadow and a type of that. It's like a black and white version of what's to come. Like old school black and white TV, like we say. So the favor that she asked for, the favor that she found, ultimately comes from the Lord. And it's just all part of his sovereign plan. And obviously, if we make good decisions, we put ourselves in a place of blessings. More so than if we don't. But he still blesses us. Like the thief on the cross. What did he ever do to gain favor? Hanging on a cross, humiliated. A thief. A criminal. Capital punishment. To be mocked at. But he found salvation with Jesus Christ on the cross. After mocking him. Favor is God blessing you and me through his son. According to the promises by the blood and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that favor is spiritual first and foremost for the kingdom and the future glory. But it is practical. It can be economic. It can be financial. There's no, there's no doubt about that. For sure. But it really is about eternal. Because even when the disciples said, we left everything for you, what do we get? And Jesus said, you leave anything, I'll give you way more in this life and the one to come. It's never about the money, but it's about the heart. And it's about having the right heart with the Lord. And that's what he's working on in your 80-year journey if you get a full 80. Or anything less than that or anything beyond that. Three times we're told about favor. And the favor of the Lord is the grace of God upon our lives in general through his son, Jesus Christ. Because he shows favor on the unbeliever. When Paul preached to the Gentiles, like Acts 17 and other places, he said, God's been good to you. He gave you rain. He gave you crops. He fed you. He did good things for you. There's a general favor upon humanity. It rains on the just and the unjust, right? But when you come to the kingdom, we're the sons and daughters of the king. And we're joint heirs with Christ. And we call Jehovah God, God of the burning bush, Abba, Father. That's the distinction. So truly tonight as a church of Jesus Christ, here in the sanctuary and those listening in other capacities, if we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ, in that simple confession of faith, and truly born of the Spirit, disciples of Jesus Christ, we don't just have the general favor of God over this universe because he loves humanity, creating his image, we have the full favor of God as sons and daughters of the king. And let me tell you, as a parent of four kids, I think about how I can bless my kids for time and eternity. I look at my grandkids, and I think, how can I pass on generational blessings for time and eternity? I'm already thinking, like, when Clementine, who's now three, what life's going to be like for her at 20. And if I live long enough to see her children or Wilkie's kids, or Zippy's kids, or Velzy's kids. So you, you older people, you know what I'm talking about here. You understand it. The favor of the Lord. And as we think about the favor of the Lord and how this worked, a couple elements to think about tonight as we seal the food on this. Boaz was the vessel of God's blessings to others. Now, we talked about this Tuesday night. This is the guy you want to work for. You know, there's good bosses and bad bosses. I think there were TV shows in the past. Good boss bad boss, reality show or something, you know? This is a really good boss. You show up for work and the boss walks through the door, he's like, the Lord be with you. And the employees go, the Lord bless you. That's a great way to start work. When I was at Joe Gibbs Racing in Charlotte about three years ago and they just won a NASCAR race, 
And they have 600 employees at Joe Gibbs Racing. But the Bible talks about how blessed it is when you work for righteous people. Joe Gibbs loves Jesus Christ. Of course, he's the coach. He's in the NFL Hall of Fame as a Redskins coach that won Super Bowls. Then he walked in from football, something brand new, NASCAR Racing, Joe Gibbs Racing. He's won all the things, NASCAR, the Daytona 500. But I was there, and from the people that are teenagers doing the, the, the wheel tire change in 12 seconds, training in the back, so the people building the cars, they got four drivers building the cars. I'm there on a Monday, they're building the cars for next week's race in Talladega, whatever. All these teams, all this stuff. I saw the whole thing because I was there with the U.S. Olympic coaches. The 14 of us got the tour. But then they, because they won the race the week before, they stopped the, they stopped the business. And um, there's a big area, bigger than the sanctuary. It's a big, like, above, Joe Gibbs' office looks above it. It's like a football field that you can look down and you see guys building the cars for next week's races. And there's the banners of all the races they've won. And whenever they win the NASCAR race the week before, everyone gets a bonus. All 600 employees get a bonus from a win. It's not just the driver that wins. Everyone gets the bonus. So the guy in the back, and the guys doing the cars, building the cars, four teams roll out in separate vehicles, separate crews, everything. But they're all one thing. Joe Gibbs Racing. And when they hung the banner that day. They stopped everything. We got to be there. Joe Gibbs comes out, and he's like, guys, great job, this and that. And on this giant wall, like your high school gym with CIF titles, this banner unfolds of the race that was won that weekend. They stopped the business for 20 minutes. Everyone stopped, and Joe Gibbs thanked everybody for the hard work. They did a great job and all this and that. And, and it's like he's saying, the Lord bless you. And they're saying, even if they don't serve the Lord, and bless you too, because you just gave us a bonus. And the best thing about it too, by the way, he gets done saying all stuff and he goes, now get back to work. <laughs> it was epic, you know, like that kind of relationship. We call that benevolent leadership in the business world, by the way. How blessed it is to work for people like that. Be that person as a boss. Be that parent. Be that individual. Treat people with respect. Elevate them. Bless them. You look upon people, pronounce blessings on them. John Corson, when he lived in our old neighborhood in Costa Mesa, he came down the street barefoot with his coffee in his hand, praying blessings over every house. He'd come by my house, oh, bless Joey. I'd be like, you know, like, so rad. Numbers chapter 6 had the, the blessing of the Levites, which, of course, Pastor Chuck used to sing at the end of every service at Calvary Costa Mesa. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. And what did we do? He sang it, and if you were there, we sang it back. We ended every service pronouncing blessings on each other. Boaz is the blesser in this story. He's a man of faith. People want to work for him. He elevates people. We didn't read it, but when Naomi finds out that Ruth has got the favor from Boaz, she's like, oh, this is good. This is good. In fact, she said, this is good. And listen to what because the previous chapter, we left off Naomi saying, call me bitter, call me Mara, everything's bad. She said later on in this chapter, she said to Ruth, blessed be the Lord. So she went from saying, call me bitter, to blessed be the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead, exclamation mark. Boaz, a blessing man, a generous man, a man who cares about people, who asks questions about people, and knows what's going on in his community. He's a blessing man, and he blesses Ruth 
and Naomi hears of it, and Ruth, who last time she was basically talking in the previous chapter, said, don't ever call me Naomi again for pleasantness. You just call me Mara because my life's been bitter. She says, blessed be God. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be he of the Lord. So she's blessing the Lord, and she's blessing the man of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. The dead would be her husband, whose decisions still affect her as she's living. His financial decisions leave her very vulnerable. Some men, when they step into eternity, they don't put their affairs in order, and their financial decisions leave their wives and family very vulnerable. But ladies, if that's ever been you, if it was, you just know God's bigger than an inept husband or a good man who just wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. And I speak transparently and openly because as a pastor, I can tell you more than once I've had to pick up the pieces for men who left their wives in a bad situation, even pastors who left their wives while they're in ministry. And we picked up the rent for their wives and the kids they left behind 30 years ago. And yet, here, God is bigger than what Naomi would say is bitterness. And now she's blessing him of the Lord who is showing kindness upon the living and the dead. Think how amazing this statement is. That's a... That's a declaration of faith that it's not all doom and gloom. It's not over. It's not the end of the story. There's, there's, there's a future and a hope. God said through Jeremiah in 29, 29, I know my thoughts for you. They're not thoughts of evil. My thoughts are good thoughts. Thoughts to give you a future and a hope. 29, 11, Jeremiah. To the people who have been taken away into captivity in Babylon, to the youth who had lost an entire chance, to youth who had lost inheritance. We talk about Naomi losing her inheritance. How would you like to lose your inheritance to get hauled off to a different country? They speak a different language because of your parents' unbelief and sin upon the land. Huntington Beach, gone. You're gone. Hauled out to some third world country in a concentration camp. That's what happened to the Jews in Babylon. And when God wrote them a letter through Jeremiah the prophet from an occupied Huntington Beach, if you will, he said, I know God's thoughts for you. They're a future and a hope. Just seek me, do what's right. I'll always honor that. Boaz is the man of blessing. In 2022, we want to be the people of blessing. In your family, in your extended family, in your place of employment, with acquaintances, co-workers, strangers. Let it restrain us from bad attitudes, dispositional thinking, preconceived thinking. Let it restrain us. Let's purpose as a church of Jesus Christ, not just worship generation, but to wake up and walk into a new day on planet Earth and say, the Lord be with you. People might not say back in response, the Lord bless you. But we already know he is blessing us because our God's a blessing God. 
Boaz is not the hero, although he certainly could be a hero, but because this is the people of covenant, the promises of God, and the messianic line of Jesus Christ, Boaz is the vessel. Boaz is the vessel of grace that can make a difference. He's not the hero. He's the vessel of grace. In fact, he said to her later on, the Lord repay your work and full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel. He made sure as a disclaimer in speaking to Ruth that all the blessings she'd ever received through his life, that it was the Lord, not him. We talked about this Tuesday. We like to be the hero. Here's five bucks in Jesus' name. Like, God's had to purge that from me. I like to be the hero. I like field goal kickers that win the game on the last play and get, like, all the big guys lift them up. I like that. I'm like, yeah. Like Rudy. You know, like, I like that stuff. No. The hero of this story has always been Jesus Christ. That is the only hero, but Boaz is the vessel. Now, Ruth is the recipient. She represents the people around the world that we have reached and are hoping to reach in 2022. That's who she represents. Because we're under the Great Commission. Jesus said to the church, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go therefore now on this authority and make disciples of all nations. Close borders, mandated vaccine passports, whatever. You don't think the living God who shed his blood on the cross and has tongues of fire literally on the day of Pentecost isn't bigger than French laws, German laws, and any other crazy laws that human governments come up with when they're in rebellion to God or think they're doing the best they can as they see the world with their worldview? Is Jehovah limited, God of Mount Sinai? The burning bush? Tongues of fire, is he limited? Ever? Of course not. It's his story. History is his story. And he's writing history through us right now, the church. In 2022, there are recipients like us who are waiting, like Ruth, to to receive that grace and to know that favor. We're kind of like Boaz, but we're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. Because whatever you give is because God gave it to you. And whatever we give is because God lets us give it. There's no hero here except Jesus Christ the right hand of the Father. But we can bless recipients. We are recipients, and we can bless other recipients. We have received grace, and we can show grace, and that's what we're going to do. That's that's what we want to do. That's why we're alive. You know, we're alive as a church to walk in grace and to extend grace and to show blessing and benevolence and love and kindness and goodness to make the world a better place. That's why we're alive. We're here. We are the hands and feet of Jesus, right? We know that. We receive things and we want to bless people. Let God bless you in 2022. Ask God, like the prayer of Jabez, to bless you more in the things of the spirit, in the things of the practical, for good health, for strength, for wisdom beyond your capacities and your cognitive skills, to interpret dreams like Daniel did and Joseph. Ask God to crank it up to turn up the volume of the kingdom in our hearts. To stir up the fire. A bruised reed he doesn't break and a smoking flax he doesn't quench. So the opposite is, a bruised reed he makes strong. 
and a smoking flax is not quenched becomes a burning fire. That's Jehovah. That's Yahweh. That's Yeshua. That's the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost working in his church. We need to raise our expectations and let be recipients of the blessings and be a blessing. I spoke with someone, and I, this is something that's really important. I spoke with someone, they called me this week. And when they call me, they're calling for a reason. They used to go to Worship Generation back in the day at Big Calvary. They're in ministry. So I have to tell you, I'm calling because our church had, you know, tens of thousands of dollars at the end of the year we didn't think we'd have. And I just convinced the board to give it all the way to missions. And I cited WG. I, 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 I said, Joey Brown would give this away. Like, I'm not the hero, though, remember. He goes, I told him, we should give, we should sell this in missions right now. And he goes, and they went for it. I'm calling to tell you that that really makes me happy. This was a young man sitting at Calvary Costa Mesa 18 years ago. And now he's in his upper 30s. He said, but I got to tell you something more. I've watched all my friends lap me in the economic cycle of life. He goes, I've been a, a renter with three kids. I serve still as a youth pastor. And he goes, and I've watched all these people move on that I went to school with, that own homes, multiple homes. But God allow our family to be in this beautiful home here at half the price. Our, our landlord should be charging us 2800 whatever, and he charges us 1200 for the last eight years. And I go, that's God's favor. God gave you favor in his sight, and he's blessing you. And he goes, yeah, and now the landlord has told me he's going to give us the house. And he's a Christian, the, the landlord, but not to, at the church. And I go, I go, that's a smart landlord because he knows he's moving toward eternity, and he can't take it with him. And our God's a blessing God, and he's blessing you. And he goes, Joey, I can't tell you how many times I left the youth pastor conferences thinking, what, how am I going to make this happen? How am I going to provide a house for my family? And he goes, and this man is, is going to give us this house. I said, the earth is the Lord's and everything they're in it. It's never about the money. It's about the heart. Our God's a blessing God. You found favor in the eyes of your landlord, and he, he, he's leaving. Like, I mean, the smartest thing a man, and he's probably my age, is to realize, like, I'm on the way out. If you don't give it away, you're going to leave, leave it behind. Designate or do something with it. But it made me so happy. He's like, yeah, so this guy who's trusting the Lord in his late 30s, watches friends on, on multiple houses that he went to school with, is telling me, yeah, I had favor for eight years with the rent at 1200 a month for a three-bedroom, two-bath house. And now the landlord says, who goes to another church, I'm going to give it to you. That's our God. Be the recipient of the blessings. Just serve the Lord. Be kind. Serve Naomi. Love Naomi. Stand with the widow who has no one standing with her. Be that person. Stand with the orphan. Be the blessing. Give to the poor so bountifully. And God will take care of you. What you need, he'll give you. It's that simple. With the generous, the Lord shows himself generous. And if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. With your life. It was like, I got on the phone, I was like, oh, I love that guy. I love that guy. It's like a son in the faith. He goes, Joey, I have dads in the faith, but you're like Uncle Joey from WG. And he goes, I had to call Uncle Joey down there in OC and tell him, like, dude, I got them to give all the money away. And my landlord's giving me the house. I was like, dude, you get it. That's the kingdom. That's the way it works. Isn't that what we're a part of? Isn't that what we want to be a part of? It should be. Boaz is the benevolent leader and the vessel. Ruth is the recipient. And finally, that closing thought, 
which the text makes clear, the Lord is over it all, which is how we started. In a universe where all the focus of the universe, the angels, the innumerable angels, they're all watching this moment where Boaz and Ruth are having this conversation. Like every angel's like going, it says in Peter, the angels wanted to know the things of the, the gospel. Like every angel's like, what's going on? They don't know the story. What's going on? What? The Lord is over it all. There are no coincidences with the kingdom of God. Just divine plans and purposes playing out through his people. And the more we're all in, the more likely we'll be right smack in the middle of our lane, thriving at what we're called to do. There are the vessels of benevolence. There are the recipients of benevolence, but the Lord is over it all. We need to know that the Lord is over our life. He's over our days. He's over our health. He's over our fears. He's over our losses. He's over our failures. He's over our hopes and dreams. Jehovah, whose son's name is Yeshua, Lord of the universe, is over it all. For all things are by him and for him and of him and all things consist. It's like Joe's shirt back there, Jesus, right there. Right there, Jesus. He's over it all. So we get to come here and praise his name, be encouraged, be stirred up, and make a difference. And like all the generations, we'll step into eternity. I'm already thinking about 2031, 2041, 2051. Now I'm thinking like 2071 when I'm long gone and what I want the church to be doing with wealth that I can pass on after I'm gone. That's how you want to think. Think how many blessings Pastor Chuck has passed on since being gone in eternity for the last eight years. Think how much fruit just continues to go on with dividends and investments for all eternity while he's in eternity. See a bigger vision, see a bigger kingdom. WG. Be the vessel of benevolence and be the recipient of benevolence for the Lord is over it all. Be a part of this story of redemption. Live this story of redemption. Be this story of redemption. May God give us favor with people around us, above us, beside us, and below us. And may we have testimonies for all eternity of his goodness in our life and the availability that allowed him to do even greater things beyond just his benevolence toward humanity.